2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over them, over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Our Father, thank you for this extraordinary uh, section in 2 Samuel in the Bible with this uh, great promise and uh, much to teach us. We look forward. We ask that you would make us look forward with expectation to all that you'll teach us over these coming weeks. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, my commentary on 2 Samuel by a man called John Woodhouse. The title of the commentary is Your Kingdom Come. He says, in his title to chapter 7, the greatest words in history. Okay, so he's not a man to exaggerate, I'm not a man to say that very often, and he says these are the most important words in all of human history. What he's getting at is the promise encapsulated at the heart of that passage, 2 Samuel 7:14, that there will be, through David's line, a Davidic line, an everlasting kingdom. And that raises the question, Will there be an endless, 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 endless line of kings? Because you need that to make an everlasting kingdom. Or will there one day be a king who lives forever? And that is the Lord Jesus. Now, why study the book of 2 Samuel? Indeed, why study the books of 1 and 2 Samuel? Because they give color, real bright color, to the portrait in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus. They make us realize why he, the Lord Jesus, is the leader, the only leader that we need. 
They make us long for him. They make us love him. They make us obey him. They make us trust him and his word. Now, if 2 Samuel is a big, big mountain in God's salvation plan, a big mountain in the range of big events in salvation history, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the summit of the mountain. Chapter 5 is when God's king David is crowned as king of all Israel, and he comes to Jerusalem, the city of the king. He makes Jerusalem his city, and he reigns from Jerusalem, and he reigns over all the enemies of God. That's chapter 5. David, the king in Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, the hill of God. Chapter 6, David, the king, brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant symbolizing, representing the, the presence of God with his people, the glory of God with his people, the, 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 the word of God, the, the commandments in the ark, and the mercy seat that sits on the top of the ark, the place of sacrifice for sin. Now, what is the significance of the ark in Jerusalem? The king and all the kingly functions and the priests and all the priestly functions with the ark in the same place, in the same city. It's big stuff. Of course, it all points us forward to the Lord Jesus, who, like David, a shepherd boy from Bethlehem, David came from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, Jesus came from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, humble David, humble Jesus, no majesty, their appearance, nothing. David came to Jerusalem, Jesus came to Jerusalem, but Jesus came as the king and as the ark, the priest, fused together in the Son of God, priest, king, on his cross, with the words on the head of his cross, King of the Jews. And the Roman centurion looking at the battered, bruised, suffering Jesus and saying, surely this man was the Son of God. Son of God means King, Messiah in David's line. Now, all that traces back to foundational promises in the Bible a thousand years earlier. Where? In 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now we're going to get to that over the next um, three weeks. We're going to have three weeks in this chapter tonight, just the first bit of the chapter. Hopefully that will have whetted uh, your appetites uh, a little bit. Now, what I want to do just to remind us of this, as we consider the glorious promises in these verses in chapter 7. And as we consider the events in history, a thousand years before Jesus came, the events describing David and his kingdom that seem just so like Jesus and his kingdom, let it sink in that this is a thousand years before Jesus came. Let 
the similarity of the events in David's time and his kingdom with the events in Jesus' time and his kingdom. Let the fact that history foreshadows Christ's coming and recorded in Scripture give you and me a greater confidence and a greater trust in the Word of God. One of the great benefits of studying the Old Testament and the New Testament and going back and forward between the two is it builds up our confidence in the Bible, our confidence in the inspiration of the Bible. Moreover, we can gain and grasp a deeper appreciation of the nature or the, the kind of stuff that the Word of God is. Now, the Word of God is diverse and rich for its and in its diversity, but so much of the Word of God, so much of what we read in Scripture is in the nature of promise and fulfillment. So much of Scripture is in the nature of God saying this will happen and describing that it did. And if so much of Scripture is about promise and fulfillment, then that takes us to the author of Scripture, God himself who inspired it, who is a God of promise and a God who is faithful to keep his uh, promises. Now, why this little digression on how a book like 2 Samuel gives us confidence in the Word of God, the inspiration of God's Word? And what that means is that the Bible, God's Word, is written by human authors, but inspired by God with this extraordinary supernatural coherence. Why does it matter that we just kind of nail down that commitment to the Word of God? This week, I was reading with a couple of people from 2 Timothy, and uh, Paul exhorts Timothy in his second letter to hold on to or to hold fast to what Timothy knows about the Word of God. That it's inspired, that it's trustworthy, that it's how people are saved, that is how people are changed. And Paul says, Timothy, I need you and your generation in your time and in your day to hold on to what you know about the Word of God and to hold it out, to speak it out, to teach it, when all around you there will be people and churches who are departing from the Word of God because... Timothy, you are in a season or a generation when the Word of God is out of fashion and when it doesn't get a hearing. And it's so easy to shift because for a generation, it gets you a hearing. But the generation later, there is nothing left. Because if we subtract from or add to the Word of God, we take out of the Word of God the supernatural power that attends it 
Sometimes on a Sunday, I'm brave enough to ask somebody, what, what was the sermon about? Can you remember any of it? And they look vaguely at me and say, um, God? Jesus? And of course, our minds are meant to recall and to think through, but our job as preachers is to preach and teach the Word of God. And if we do that, our confidence is that God, by His Spirit, will apply that Word in ways that we understand, that we know, that we remember, and that we don't. But what you will see over a period of time is the people of God growing in maturity, growing in unity, growing in evangelism, because the Word of God is ruling over the people of God. Now, if 2 Samuel does that for you, it's a good thing. Confidence in the Word of God. As these events written and uh, taking place a thousand years before Christ describe him and his kingdom. Now, let's uh, consider the text that was read for us tonight. And I'll give you three headings and we'll do the first two tonight. So, verses 1 and 2, David's decision to do something for God's glory. And then secondly, God's rebuke of David. So, David's decision to do something for God's glory, verses 1 and 2. God's rebuke of David, verses 4 to 7. And thirdly, and we'll look at this uh, in detail next Sunday, God willing, God's gracious and glorious promise to David. Really, you want to look at all three of these together, the decision to do something for God's glory, God's rebuke of David, and off the back of strong rebuke from God to David, this gracious and glorious promise. But uh, we need to do it over too, just for time. Now, let's look at David's decision to do something for God's glory. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. When the king lived in his house, that's David, and it was a big house and a grand house. And the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding nations, the enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, in terms of timing, we're about 40, we're well into David's 40 year reign. So we're well into his uh, reign. And we move forward maybe 20 or 30 years from chapter 6. And the king lived in his house, his palace. It was ornate. It was befitting of a king. And the Lord, the writer says, had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. In other words, there is peace. There is stability. Rest is a biblical word. Under the rule of God's king, there is rest. It's a creational word. Peace, stability. David is reigning as God's chosen king leading the people in obedience to God and his word. And David at this point concludes and decides that he wants to build a house, which will later become the temple. He wants to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem many years earlier, the events described in chapter 6 David put the ark in a tent or a tabernacle. Now, just think of a tent, like one of these old kind of big scout tents with white and poles. That's about it. It's not a fancy structure. It's a tent or a tabernacle where the ark was put 
behind a curtain into a holy place where only the high priest could go and sacrifice. And David did what was right when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. He put it in a tabernacle, a tent, because God had instructed the people at the time of the Exodus to put the ark in this tent as they journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land and indeed when they were in the promised land. The ark, when God was on the move, was to be housed in a temporary structure, a tent called the tabernacle. But now that God's chosen king is in Jerusalem, the king is in the city of God, and now that the ark is in Jerusalem, still in a tent and a tabernacle, and there is rest, there is peace, there is prosperity, David concludes, now is the time to build a more permanent structure for the ark to be housed in. And he's not wrong because the book of Deuteronomy had spoken of one day there will be a permanent dwelling or house for the ark, temple. So David thinks, now is the time. Now is the time for me to build this house, this temple for the ark of the covenant and bring glory to God. And moreover, David is comparing his own house, his palace, to the tabernacle where the ark is housed. David says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Just the comparison, David lives in a palace, the ark of God is in a tent, and David wants to put that right. He wants to glorify God by putting the ark in a temple, a building that is befitting of God and his presence and glory. And we need to conclude that there is genuineness in the heart and in the mind of David to bring glory to God, at least to a large extent. He wants to glorify God. And Nathan, God's prophet, agrees. Nathan says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And in due course, Solomon, David's son, would build a temple. Go home and look up one of the YouTube videos on the first temple in Jerusalem. It's a magnificent structure. Solomon would build that. But the point here in the narrative is that it won't be David who does it. And it won't happen yet. So consider second God's rebuke of David. David had wanted to build a temple, a house for the ark, and God said, well, you're not going to do it. Verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Is it down to you, in other words? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, or to paraphrase David, it's not up to you, it's not for you to take the initiative here. That will happen when I choose. When I determine, in accordance with my will, 
God is saying, David, I am sovereign. I am God. Now, we've already touched on a a big, big, big lesson from 2 Samuel that is confidence in God's Word. Hold on, hold fast in your generation to the Word of God. Because it always endures. It always will. And here's another big, big lesson from 2 Samuel, that the initiative in salvation history, in the outworking of the purposes of God, is never ours and always God's, ultimately. Just let me show you that uh, through Scripture. Creation was the initiative of God. God did not need to create the world and humanity. It delighted him to do so. But there was nothing in the character or the attributes or the mind of God that says, I have a need that is lacking. God took the initiative and said, let there be. After humanity's rebellion, before humanity cried out for rescue, Genesis 3.15, God took the initiative and promised to rescue humanity. That critical moment when God called Abraham and promised that through his name there would be a people from all the nations of the earth, it was God's initiative to create that new covenant community. Covenants come from God. If we were in any doubt that the call and promise to Abraham was God's initiative, it could not happen because Abraham's wife could not bear a child. So God enabled her to conceive. And it was God who called Moses. Moses said no, and God said, yes, you will lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. It was God who miraculously delivered them. It was God who brought about the birth of David. Through these extraordinary events told in the book of Ruth that this boy David was born in Bethlehem. It was God who chose David to be his king. The one that no one else would have chosen, God chose. And it is for God to determine when the temple will be built to house his ark. And down through the centuries, it was God who delivered his people into exile. It was God who brought them out. It was God who spoke through the prophets about his kingdom to come. 
It was out of God's love for humanity, for God so loved the world. God's love, God's initiative. It was God who miraculously brought about the birth of Jesus. It was God who determined that his son would go to the cross. It was God who raised him. It was God who gave him all authority in heaven and earth. And at the end of time, it is God and God alone who will say to Jesus, return as king and judge of all. Now have I labored the point? What about personally? It is God who saves. What about revival and renewal in the church? It is God in his spirit who does it. Now, you may struggle, I may struggle with this. We might think, and will be corrected in a moment, that we are passive participants in the great divine drama of salvation. We are not. We are caught up and used by God. But the point being made again and again and here again in 2 Samuel, when God says to David, you will not decide when my house, my temple will be built. The point being made again and again throughout history is that God is absolutely sovereign over all and that the destiny of humanity, now just think on this, that the destiny of humanity, and you cannot get any bigger than that, is entirely in the hands of God, not humanity. Now, this should leave us, and David comes to that in the second half of the chapter, humbled. All David can say at the end of this in his prayers, we'll see in a couple of weeks, is, thank you, God, for including me. Please keep your promise. Now, I encourage you to mull over the fact that the destiny of humanity, that the salvation of humanity is entirely within the initiative of God. That his word is utterly trustworthy. It doesn't mean to say that he doesn't use us or delights to embrace us in all sorts of ways, but the initiative is with him. Now, as we looked at last week, maybe you listened to last week's sermon, you remember the events that led to the ark being brought to Jerusalem. David was right to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, but his first attempt failed because of how the ark was brought to Jerusalem on a cart pulled by oxen, not carried by priests, and God's king must obey God's word. David didn't, and we struggled, and we wrestled with the fairness of what happened. I did at least, and I really struggled when that man, Uzzah, put out his hand merely to steady the ark as the oxen slipped and it was going to fall off, and God took him out just because he touched the ark. 
And here is David many years later, and all David wants to do is to build a house for the ark. And again, we struggle to understand the pushback from God. I want to do this for your glory. And God says, who do you think you are? Surely what David was doing was good and praiseworthy. After all, he just wanted to bring glory to God. Or did he? Was there a bit in his heart that wanted to make his name, David's name, great as the one who brought glory to God? Maybe. And you see, David is a great king. He is a great king. He is God's chosen king. But he is not the king. For he did not perfectly obey God's word. Who perfectly obeys God's word? Jesus, the king. And you see how all the confidence pillars are being stacked up. Absolute confidence in the word of God. Absolute confidence that in salvation, God takes the initiative. Absolute confidence in King Jesus, who perfectly obeys God's word. There is nothing on this earth, and there has nothing ever existed in history that merits the confidence and the loyalty and the following of that word that you can trust absolutely, a God who is sovereign over salvation, and a King in Jesus who is perfectly obedient to his Father. And if these narratives like 2 Samuel leave you just holding on to Jesus, following him as your captain, loyal to him, loving him, trusting him, leaning on him, well, there's a great application from these narratives. At a time when so many in the church are abandoning him is too strong a word, drifting from him. And when in our culture he is mocked and despised. Now, let's pause as we conclude and build in some applications practically. I mean, absolute confidence and loyalty to Jesus is the big application. But let me try and weave in some others. As Christians, we live as citizens of God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. God has brought us together to be part of this local church in Chalmers. And we are, as a church, I guess, perhaps more than some, committed to vision and strategy and stuff. We are. Why are we doing it? To bring glory to God? You look around the stained glass at the bottom of all the stained glass windows, it says, to God be the glory. I guess for many of the people who gave for this building, it was. Was Thomas Chalmers right 
when for the glory of God in Scotland he built 600 of these buildings? Was he right? Is it wrong to do things to take initiatives to bring glory to God? For example, to plant a church. Or to buy and redevelop this building at significant expense? Is it wrong to have a 20 to 20, 30 vision? These questions make me shudder because I, I guess I scribbled it down and then we all owned it and changed it. And, but is that in order? Is it wrong to think we can serve the wider church in a significant area like training or to set up a trust with a vision to train gospel workers for the church in Scotland and raise money all over the place to make it happen? Are these things wrong? The answer to that question, and I've thought carefully what the answer is, the answer is they might be. That's the right answer. They might be wrong if our motivations are wrong. If we think we are doing God a favor, if our expressed desire to bring God glory is in fact to bring us glory. Now, let me just pause, pause there and say that our motivations are flawed, will be flawed. If you write a check for £100 or £100,000 for a building project, there's a little bit in your heart or a little bit in my heart that wants someone to know. That, that wants me to think I've done something good for God's glory. This will advance his purposes. So we've got to constantly challenge our hearts because they are flawed. And it's when we do and when we're humble before God that we're protected. Now, it's got me thinking this week, how can we keep on a path that is safe and zealous for the gospel, for God's glory. Because that does describe us as a church, zealous for the gospel, trying to do stuff, training and planting and all that stuff. How can we get that right, yet not go against God and his plans and his initiatives? How can we ensure that in five or ten years Chalmers doesn't come tumbling down and that church that was once strong has all crumbled down? Now, I came up with 12 reasons, 12 ways. I'm going to just read them as sentences and ask us to ponder them. You can listen back and think them through yourself. Number one, keep a balanced focus on the local church and the global church. In other words, commit to a local church, really commit to it, but keep your eye on the global church. Number two, prayerfully express our dependence on God for who he is and what he alone can do. Take 
our plans to God. Every bit of them. Ask him to put the roadblocks up if it is wrong. Ask him to take the roadblocks down if it is right. Number three, trust, teach, listen, and obey God's word. Because there may be things that we are doing that we should not be doing, and there may be things that we are not doing that we should be doing. Number four, tell people the gospel of the kingdom. That remains for me as one of the ministers here, one of the things that constantly comes back to me in my mind and heart, are we telling people the gospel of the kingdom? That's a sure, sure, sure way of knowing we are on track with where God wants us to be. Number five, if gospel opportunities present and God has given us the resources to take them, then do so. Number six, engage in generous gospel partnership with other churches. Do not think that Chalmers Church has arrived and the kingdom of God in this city depends on us. If God will do anything, he will raise up many churches in partnership. Number seven, embrace genuine corporate leadership and accountability. You know, we're sorting out what we call ourselves up here, yeah? I know it's frustrated many of you. <laughs> so I'm Robin and he's Jay and Roger's Rog. You know what we're going to say now? I am one of the ministers. I am one of the ministers. I am one of the ministers. Do you know, from my perspective, that is 100% more safe than I am the minister. As soon as a church gets caught up and bound up with a human personality... It's risky. It doesn't mean to say you don't have leadership, but you have corporate leadership. Number eight, be willing to step back as individuals and as a church. Give the baton to somebody else. Step back when the time is right. And to many in your generation, step up. Number nine, be very careful with money. It's all God's. Number 10, accept that our plans might not work out or in our timing. Number 11, don't fail or fall for the success syndrome. It's amazing how many adverts in Christian magazines looking for a new minister read like they're looking for Jesus. Because what they should be saying is you need to look for contrite, humble people who don't have huge amounts of confidence. Gifted, yes, but and number 12, remember God doesn't need us. Now, that's the rebuke to David. Now, if we could go on for another 45 minutes, 
we'd be able to look at the glorious promise that follows when David is humbled. And if we had a bit more time after that, we'd get to the prayer when David, and it's a wonderful prayer. Let me just read you a verse and we'll pray. David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, at the end of this Sunday, when the whole church has been able to be back together in person, let me remind you that we are still a scattered church for a number are not yet back in person. They will be in time. Here we are about to move forward in a new phase, whatever, to whatever the new normal is. And 2 Samuel gives us rock-solid confidence in the Word of God, in the initiative of God, in the King of God, Jesus, and humbles us before him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead us forward as a church over these coming months, humbly and carefully, and trusting in you, giving our plans to you and asking if they are right, remembering that your word is the supreme rule of life and faith, that you take the initiative in salvation and in the progress of the church, and that your Son is Lord and Christ, King, and that we follow him. And all this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.